You've eaten Gotham's wealth, its spirit, but your feast is nearly over. This is not my hole. It's an operating table. And I'm the surgeon. Why aren't you laughing? From this moment on, none of you are safe. Welcome to the Batman Book Club, a podcast that explores the Dark Knight Library. I'm your host, Ryan Lauer. Thank you for tuning in for episode number 38, an interview with writer Scott Beatty. His name may sound familiar, but that's because he has dabbled into many books in the DC world and in the Marvel world, and more specifically in the DC world, a bunch of Batman books, such as Batman, The Ultimate Guide to the Dark Knight, The Batman Handbook, Batman Begins, The Visual Guide, Batman Begins, A Comic Adaptation, Gotham Knights, Joker, Last Laugh, and perhaps best known, Robin Year One, Batgirl Year One, Nightwing Year One. Three great stories that can be sitting on the shelf as sort of like a trilogy of sorts. Great stories, great books. And in this interview with Scott, he talks about his the way he's worked himself into comics and writing stories, as well as shedding a lot of light on the different styles of books that he wrote from the, the, like the Batman, the ultimate guide to the comic stories and the differences and all of that. And of course he tells us what his favorite Batman story is. So instead of me continuing to talk about what we talked about, how about we just hop right to my interview with Scott Beatty. Scott, thanks for joining me for this interview to talk some comic books. Thanks for having me, Ryan. Absolutely. Uh, This is going to be a lot of fun, and we're going to hop right in. But my first question to everybody in their first time on the show is, what is your favorite Batman story? Oh, gosh. Um, (laughs) It's like asking what your favorite child is when you have kids. I know. I know. (laughs) The one that I didn't yell at. Uh, No. (laughs) Let me think. Let me think about that. Um, You know, I guess my go-to is uh, There Is No Hope in Crime Alley. Ooh, uh, nice. You know, that's one of my favorites because it's, uh, you know, Batman travels to an alternate dimension where he meets a, you know, kind of a spoiled brat version of himself. Uh-huh. And he gets a chance to kind of, he, he has the opportunity to stop the crime that created him with this alternate version of himself. And it's, uh, I, I guess the, the adventure gives Batman hope in a time where he, he kind of is weary on the war on crime. So, um, I don't know that that's that's a that's that's one that I always think about uh, when I think about writing Batman or you know Batman's you know never-ending quest. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess my my number two would be the um, the final serial episode of the Manhunter backup, where Batman teams with Paul Kirk uh, to bring down the Council. That's uh, that that's one of my favorites. So that is uh, that was never talked about. uh so good pull and yeah of this is episode 38 and nobody has mentioned uh no hope in crime alley so you're the first well done yeah i mean of course the the classics are the classics for a reason so you've got you know your year ones dark knight returns long halloween all that of course because they're great stories but it's awesome when somebody's uh, picks an original choice. So well, very, very cool. Yeah. I mean, I mean, those are all of the great stories that you mentioned, but mm-hmm. you know, as a kid growing up, you know, these are the, the, the bat tales that kind of influenced me, mm-hmm. um, you know, like reading them, um, you know, as they come out, they came out at the, the, you know, the newsstand back when comics were, I'm dating myself 40 cents an issue, <laughs> you know, like a $2 monthly allowance, uh, yeah. you know, could buy you five comic books or four comic books on a candy bar. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I, I would probably mention also the brave and the bold, any issue whatsoever. Uh, mm-hmm. Batman and another character, those team ups were, you know, that, that was probably my favorite comic book starting out. And when I discovered a comic book store that had back issues, those were the first back issues that I ever bought. So, wow. I, even now the, the back issues section of comic stores, that's where, that's where it's at. It's such a treasure hunt and especially of going in and not having anything particular in mind and just, I'm just going to browse and see what they have. It's, oh, that's always, that's the funnest part of a comic shop to me. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, and especially in these pandemic times, like rereading mm-hmm. older stuff, 
Um, you know, I've got some things on my shelf behind me, some Swamp Thing collections from Alan Moore, wow. uh, the collected Calvin and Hobbes, and I just got the DC through the 80s uh, collection uh, that Paul Levitz uh, curated. Um, mm -hmm. It's like that 550-page tome of, you know, great 80s stories that, uh, that sort of, uh, you know, ended the DC universe before Crisis on Infinite Earth. So some really wow, good very, stuff. Very cool. Uh, so I guess you kind of, you've touched on it a little bit so far, but I, I guess I want to ask you, so what's your, what's like your Batman origin story? Like when it came to Batman, when you first came across Batman and, and how you've stuck with them over the years? Oh, wow. Um, I don't know. I mean, it, it, yeah, that's, that's a tough question. I think I, I, it would be kind of a confluence of events. Um, I recall 1974, my parents getting their first color TV and watching the Super Friends for the first time in color. Um, and uh, seeing Batman on Super Friends. Uh, I grew up in a time where there were only three networks, ABC, NBC, and CBS. And then we started getting some cable out of New York City, uh, which were WPIX uh, Channel 11 and WOR Channel 9. And WPIX in the afternoon ran the Batman uh, television show with Adam West and Burt Ward. Uh, and then I was buying comics at the time. So, you know, the Brave and the Bold, Justice League of America, um, the dollar comics, like detective mm -hmm. comics, like those, you know, what, uh, what Mark Wade calls the all day sucker, you know, like that, that lollipop that, you know, that everlasting gobstopper. Yeah. Um, th those were sort of Batman family would probably be one of those things. And, you know, they, they all kind of came together at sort of the same time. So I think my, my comics influences, you know, was sort of this, this, you know, this bombardment that enabled me to go to different places. And it really kind of, encouraged my love for comics because there were there were lots of things that i could go to i mean today you know no doubt you can go anywhere you know you can just click on the internet but but back then you know comics were fewer and further between and you know you, we didn't have sort of the uh you know the cultural zeitgeist that we have today so yeah it seems like so you just like it almost seems like everyone has gotten to experience got to get home from school because the adam west batman show is on tv <laughs> absolutely absolutely and you know luckily wpix ran two episodes so when you would get to that cliffhanger you know you'd always have a, a cliffhanger and then either a resolution and then another cliffhanger mm -hmm. you know by nature of the show that it, it would always you know end with you know what will batman do this time stay tuned same it's like, bad time same bad channel that thing. the people who watched that show as it originally aired they just like look down on all of us of like we had to wait for the next episode and all of you got to experience it right away if you wanted to you didn't have to sit there with the cliffhanger like we did <laughs> yeah you know streaming television has ruined us you know there's yeah. no anticipation <laughs> like no one has to wait um i you know I, I often say that i grew up in a time where i had to wait six to eight weeks uh to get boba fett in the mail um oh. so you know and that, of course six to eight weeks was actually 10 to 12 and then there was the uh the delay because Boba Fett had the rocket firing backpack and you got that nice little letter in the mail that said, you know, Hey kid, you know, screw you. <laughs> it's going to be late. Um, but you know, sending, you know, proofs of purchase off in the mail. Like we don't know any of that today. We have Amazon prime and it, it delivers it literally two days ago. You know, it, mm -hmm. it was a time warp. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. The struggle was real. Exactly. Um, exactly. We don't, we don't understand that now. Well, so, to wait, to wait 30 days for the next issue of a comic book. I mean, uh, to, to, you know, really to understand serial fiction, you've got to, you know, you've got to have it, understand it, accept it, process it, and then wait. And then think mm -hmm. about what you just saw or just read for another 30 days with, you know, streaming content, you get to the end and it's like, Oh, I can't wait. Let's watch the next one. Mm -hmm. You know, the next thing you know, it's, you know, 2am and you know, you're, you're a zombie. And I, I, I totally understand the, the, the binging aspect and how we don't want to wait because we want to, you know, we want to get to the next chapter, but the waiting also extends that conversation of the subject for so much longer. So instead of something Netflix releases on a Friday, by Monday, you're like, yeah, we already talked about it over the weekend. What's next? Whereas, I mean, we take a comic book that's like one issue a month. It's like, we're going to talk about that for six months, eight months, right, 12 right. months. And so, I mean, it's a grass is always greener, but I, I don't think it's bad that we have to wait sometimes. You know, it's funny. Uh, National Public Radio had a story on yesterday. They talked about the lack of uh, the sense of community mm -hmm. because we don't go to places now. So, I mean, to, in all honesty, I binge watched uh, Cobra Kai 
a couple of days ago with my kids over two days. Mm -hmm. And instead of like, you know, waiting for that water cooler moment or talking about the next day, we're talking about it as we're watching it. You know, we're pausing it and, you know, referencing, you know, the last episode or the previous season. So it's happening in real time, I think, rather than having that water cooler experience that we used to before the pandemic. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, I, it's, it's just weird. Everything's weird. It's always going to change, but you know, you look back and it's, it was better back then, you know, the old days, you know? <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm a fan of streaming content. I mean, I, uh-huh. I, I love the stuff that's, you know, I love what I love, but it's just sometimes I feel like I have to parse it out in order to appreciate it because once you get to that eighth or 10th episode and it's done, then you have that, okay, what's next? And if the next thing doesn't measure up to that experience, you know. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. My, my recent... I know I'm going off on a tangent. We'll get back to Batman in a second, but uh, <laughs> The Mandalorian. So I watched the first season as it was coming out. And the second season, I just waited until it was all done. I mostly avoided spoilers, but I did not miss the the big one, which I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. Whoever hears yeah, me talk about The Mandalorian yeah. spoiler, but to think of, I blasted, I, re- I needed to refresh my memory. So I wa- rewatched the first season and then hopped right into the second season. I did it all in like four days. And I, by the end of that, everything's fresh. It's, it was better for me with the second season because everything was fresh. And, you know, as I moved along there, it, but like, yeah, four days, two years worth of their Mandalorian show is now done. Well, like, you're, <laughs> Ryan, you're lucky because the internet ruins everything, right? You know, I know. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, you know, I, I know everything, including, you know, all the things people dislike about Wonder Woman 1984. And, yeah. and I haven't seen it, but uh, the Mandalorian was something that my family kind of, you know, we, we waited until Friday and mm-hmm. we, we made that our Friday breakfast ritual. So, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, I can see like waiting until the very end, if you can keep the internet from spoiling things. And unfortunately, you know, most of my friends are comics creators and writers and, and, you know, these guys are already in a bubble before yeah. the pandemic and are craving any kind of social interaction. So they're already tweeting about it. And, you know, we've got, I have lifelong friends that are unfriending other friends because they spoiled the Mandalorian. So I, I've seen that. I mean, I did as best as I could. And I'm really glad that the main one wasn't directly spoiled. It made me think of like, oh, I'm kind of piecing it together. Scroll, scroll, scroll. I don't want to know. So it wasn't completely confirmed in my head, but I had a guess. But I didn't know how or when or what i just kind of knew and i'll just leave it there i don't want to ruin it in case yeah yeah i won't i won't ruin it either i i was kind of blindsided by it. i mean i guessed it Mm -hmm. i think you know when probably 99 percent of everyone else guessed it when we saw that thing yeah you know before that thing Mm -hmm. um and then i was i was pleasantly surprised and i was thrilled and you know and then of course you've got every other fan you know crying oh that's fan service it stinks it's like come on and i don't care i Loved it. Yeah, it it got me all hyped. I I really enjoyed it. So well, I, yeah, Ryan. I think it's ironic that fans mm-hmm. uh, are are against fan service, what they call fan service in mm-hmm. comics and <laughs> movies, because it's all fan service. Yeah. I mean, every sequel is fan service. It's like, hey guys, you like that movie enough for us to make another one, mm-hmm. you know? And in comic books, it's like, you know what? I'm going to bring back that character you really like because you're going to, you know, you're going to wig out when you see it. That's fan service. It's all fan service. Just deal with it. Enjoy mm-hmm. it. You know, shut up and enjoy it. I, yeah, I don't see a Batman story, a Batman character that I love pops in just because it's like, hey, there you go. You got to see this. I'm like, awesome. <laughs> Great. Well, I, yeah. I wanted to see... Of course, I'd love to see this one or that one or whatever from because I'm a fan. I mean, that's why we watch this stuff. But I, I can't think of any writer um, who, who's writing Batman who, or who has written Batman for the last couple of decades that would uh, be able to pass a polygraph test if they were asked, you know, did you indulge yourself ever mm. when writing yeah. that character? Like, absolutely. Absolutely. That time I had Metamorpho appear in a cameo. Yep, totally. That was me. That was all for me. Well, isn't the, the whole part of of art, especially in dealing with storytelling of, of creating something that you yourself would want to watch or read? Well, then, of course, you're gonna be like, well, I always want to see this. And yeah, I'd love to see oh, this yeah. right here. And so it kind of only makes sense. Absolutely. I mean, if you're not excited about it, then how can you expect your audience to be excited about it? Yeah. I mean, certainly, you know, you, uh, you could talk about killing your darlings and all those literary notions, mm-hmm. but you know, when you're writing it, if you're not trying to create something that the audience, the reader will think is cool. Mm-hmm. I mean, that the reader will think is, is so cool that they, you know, put the comic down and read it through a second time over, then you're not, you're not doing your job. Absolutely. Uh, as a fan, that all makes total sense to me. 
I am not a comic book writer, but I read, I read plenty and that makes total sense to me. And since we're talking about that, can, can you just tell us like, when did you get into writing comics? About uh, 21 years ago at this point, I mean, 22, 20. Yeah. It's, it's been over two decades. I've, I've marked my anniversary. Um, long story short, I've, I wanted to work in comics since college mm-hmm. and uh, I went to grad school. I majored in fiction writing and I was looking for any opportunity to kind of break into comics. And at, at that time in the mid nineties, I was picking the very worst time to break in. Um, I actually, I, I did a, um, a teen Titans pitch that I sent off to Mike Carlin because the, the latest incarnation of the Titans had sort of flamed out at that time. This is around 1994, I think. Um, 95 maybe at the latest and uh, Mike Carlin actually called me back at my office I was teaching English at Iowa State University and he said don't quit your day job and (laughs) you know uh, and he said it good-naturedly I mean there was a you know there's another part of the story he said look you're picking the worst time to break into comics and of course at this time uh, all the acetate covers the hologram covers you know comics just imploded from from all that excess yeah like the baseball card industry there for a while. And so, you know, he was, you know, giving me some hard truths, but I was luckily, I I actually did uh, make it and and break into DC comics. And I reminded Mike Carlin of that story. And of course he didn't remember it. He's like, I I don't remember that. He's like, you know how many guys I tell, you know, don't. I was going to say, he says it so much. Yeah, exactly. You're one of them. (laughs) But but I persevered. So, Um, but anyway, I, long story short, again, I wanted to break into comics uh, I applied all over the place, trying to get into places like the Comics Buyer's Guide. I was interviewed there and nothing came of it. And then I was hired by Wizard, uh, the comics magazine. Mm-hmm. And I, I, they sort of brought me in uh, as a copy editor and put me in charge of their toy department, uh, their toy column, in order to create Toy Fair magazine, which I did. And launched Toy Fair in 1997, I'm thinking. And all, all along, I was trying to build up contacts within the comic book industry and met people along the way. And then I started writing the secret files books that DC did early on. And I, I, I kind of cut my teeth on text pieces like timelines, mm-hmm. uh, profile pages. And eventually uh, an editor gave me a shot and it was the DCU holiday bash. And I wrote uh, a, a, a story starring shrapnel, the uh, doom patrol villain who could, he was a living fragmentation bomb. And the editor, Darren Vincenzo, liked it enough that he gave me two extra pages. So uh, my story is a 12-page story among 10-page stories. And I guess he liked it enough that uh, on the cover, Shrapnel's face is, is the Christmas ornament on the Christmas tree. And all the other DC heroes like Impulse, Batman, Robin, Wonder Woman, Superman are reflected in the facets of his face. So uh, my first story out, I got 12 pages. I got the cover. And that, that opened doors for me in the bat offices. So... Uh, I, at, at this time of year, especially, I'm endlessly thankful uh, for the holiday stories uh, that inspired me as a reader and that I was able to pull one off and, and break into DC. Wow, that's awesome. So with, with Mike, his information, how were you able to reach out to him? Like, was it, I mean, you didn't grab a phone book and be like, hey, Mike Carlin, because I saw his name in credits in comic books. No, um, well, I was, I was going to school in Iowa and I'm mm-hmm. from the East Coast. So, you know, I... Anytime there was a comic book show, uh, I, you know, I would try to gravitate to that because I was you know, also separated from my, my girlfriend at the time uh, who would eventually become my wife. Um, so I went to a couple shows in Des Moines and I met Phil Hester uh, and I believe um, Brett Breeding and Doug Hazelwood. And, um, I, and I, I, I apologize because I'm blanking, but I think it was Brett who gave me uh, Mike's email address, so, you know, I, like some okay. contact information and said, Hey, you should try Mike Carlin. Uh, and that's, that's how I did it. So I was able to, uh, I was working with a, an aspiring artist and we came up with a pitch and we did like the first six pages of art and, and I was able to put together a packet and send it off to DC. Um, unfortunately, I did not know at the time that DC, like many publishers do not accept unsolicited submissions and they sort of give you the blanket response. Hey, you know, I didn't read your story, but we're using this character. You know, so mm-hmm. um, that way, if they ever publish anything close to that, some, you know, Joe Schmo from Kalamazoo can't come back and say, you stole my Wolverine idea. So Kalamazoo, so uh, they, they did. They did it. Yeah, um, they, they did end up uh, using uh, the Adam who was in, in my Teen Titans because he had been de-aged 
in zero hour. And uh, I think that's what Mike said to me. He says, you know, uh, I haven't read your pitch, but we are using the atom. So that told me that he did, you know, give it a cursory glance at least. Yeah. But I laugh when you say Kalamazoo because it's sometimes, uh, you know, people in the Midwest, if it's not like Chicago that's mentioned, it's like, I know that city. I know that city. Oh my gosh. Somebody dropped a city that I know because (laughs) I'm right now I'm like an hour and 20 minutes South of Kalamazoo, Michigan. I'm in Indiana and we go to Kalamazoo. Well, used to not, not during the pandemic, uh, have a really good pizza place there, but that's neither here nor there, but it is a, it is a delicious. Is it Chicago style pizza? No, it's a thin crust. It's okay, like a thin, good, yeah, it's a thin crust. It's, oh, it's delicious. If I wanted lasagna, I'd order lasagna. Okay. <laughs> no, I, you know, like I said, I'm from the East Coast, but I lived in Ames, Iowa and around Des Moines. And, you know, that was sort of the bone of contention, not being able to find a good, you know, a good greasy mm-hmm. slice of pizza for uh, the two years, two and a half years I was in grad school. Um, but yeah, no, I lived in the Midwest. I actually worked at a radio station in Ames and I had to learn a lot of uh, Midwest names that, you know, I, I went to Juniata College uh, for my undergraduate. So I'm out in Iowa and I have to learn to pronounce uh, Nevada, which looks like Nevada mm. and Atumwa and Keokuk and, you know, all these great Iowa names that, uh, you know, are based on Native American uh, mm-hmm. names, you know, originally. So uh, Kalamazoo was just, I pulled it out of the air. No, well, it's a good, it's a good drop. That's good job. Uh, looking at your at your work, a lot of your published work, it, there's definitely a lot of work between nonfiction and fiction. And by nonfiction, and when in strictly speaking to Batman, you you'd written Batman: The Ultimate Guide to the Dark Knight, the the Batman Handbook, uh, the Batman Begins, the Visual Guide, uh, books like that. Which one? I guess like which one's first and how'd you get, what was your idea behind that? And you'd realize that's, you know, that's what I kind of want to do. I don't know if it was necessarily what I wanted to do. I mean, those were really tough to write because they involved, Mm -hmm. you know, tons and tons of research when the internet was new. So, you know, fortunately there weren't Wikipedia pages or fan pages devoted to a lot of this stuff. And so I had to get entire runs of comics, like entire, uh, you know, I mean, just, you know, huge boxes of trade paperbacks in order to read everything and catch up on stories that I didn't own myself. Um, I was uh, approached by Steve Corte, and I think this was around 2000 or 2001, and he was the licensed book editor at DC uh, to do the the Ultimate Guide, and it was mm-hmm. from Dorling Kindersley, the British publisher, who do, do all these great uh, educational books with cutaway diagrams and everything. So, Batman was my first, and uh, you know, it was a chance to do. Uh, you know, exploded views of the bat cave, the bat cycle, the utility belt, et cetera. So, um, I mean, I, I loved every minute doing it, but those were really tough to write. I mean, they just, a lot of, a lot of work and a lot of work going into the timelines and everything. Plus in addition to the character pages and all that. So um, after that, I did Superman, Wonder Woman, Catwoman, the Justice League. I was one of four writers who did the DC Comics Encyclopedia. Um, I co-wrote an Avengers Ultimate Guide um, about a decade after that. So, uh, I, I, you know, I never turn away, you know, the, 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 the nonfiction versions of it um, because they're just, they're good evergreen books and, you know, they're giant coffee table books. And mm-hmm. I know that kids love them because they're, they're just endless sources of information. And I know so many editors at DC then had copies of it on their bookshop, including the bad offices, because that would be their go-to book mm-hmm. for whatever, you know, bit of trivia or, you know, history or ephemera that they needed for, you know, whatever writer they were working with at the time. So at, at least while they were still canonical, you know, they, they served as a good uh, history for the characters. Absolutely. And I know it's much easier now to just go to the internet and Google stuff, but I still, I, I love digital. I find benefits in it for sure, but nothing to me beats a physical copy of a book and holding a book in your hand. And those as being a reference guide, like I, I do have that ultimate guide to the dark Knight, and I have the Batman encyclopedia and it, yes, I can just Google it, but sometimes it's fun. As you just said, for a little kid, it also works for a guy who's 34 to just grab it and just open <laughs> yep. it and just like, look at, okay, let's read about this character. Okay, let's read about this. I mean, it's just, it's just fun. Right. Yeah. You know, it's funny because I, I in one of the, the versions, I think it might've been the updated version that uh, Jim Lee did the cover for, for the Batman Ultimate Guide. Uh, there was a new Batcave and the schematic that DC sent me had an area that was listed as unknown. Mm-hmm. And it was some like sub level seven. And, uh, you know, it listed it uh, on the encyclopedia as, 
you know, classified or something to that nature. And I was able to kind of like, you know, in a meta way, go back to that and then pitch a story to DC that was going to be published through uh, the DC digital, like, I don't know how many years ago, five, seven years ago at this point, uh, when it, like the digital first comics. And it was a, a story that told what was kept in that, that sub level. And I wrote three issues of an unpublished story because the digital stuff was, uh, at that point, they pulled the plug on it. You know, they're, they're coming back with it now, but at that point it wasn't, you know, it wasn't where they wanted it to be. So the story is written and it was, I think two pages were drawn, but it's, it's unpublished otherwise. Gotcha. Well, I could see in a way the, the pitch and how you would want to do, you know, a visual ultimate guide to the Dark Knight. But can you tell me about where the idea for the Batman handbook and the pitch <laughs> for the Batman handbook? How did all of that yeah. go down? Well, uh, Quirk Books in Philadelphia, and Quirk is the publisher of uh, the Zombie Survival Guide oh, and okay. the Worst Case Scenario Survival Guides. <laughs> and uh, Quirk, uh, like its name, uh, not just the fruit, made its claim to fame by publishing these really oddball books. Uh, and since then, you know, they did uh, Pride and Prejudice and Zombies and, and things like that. So Quirk is, is a really great think outside the box publisher. And they approached DC about doing... Uh, a Batman handbook, like the worst case scenario handbook, mm -hmm. but done uh, realistically. And so my task, and this is probably, this is literally the hardest thing I've ever had to write. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, it, it was to find all of the experts and make it all seem real. And so I had to talk to stuntmen, uh, Hollywood stuntmen about how to drive a car on two wheels. Uh, I approached uh, FBI agents, um, and I still have all the, their business cards. So you know, I've, I've, my Rolodex is, is really weird. Um, about how to interrogate someone, uh, how to resist interrogation, how to, you know, how bullets spall along and, and track along flat surfaces. I mean, it was a crash course in literally everything. And the, uh, I don't know if this was intended from the beginning, but as we were headed to publication, we had to put uh, disclaimer at the front that said this is for entertainment only because I mean I literally told people how to jump off a roof and you know and bounce off an awning um, you know and, and all this really crazy stuff and not long after it was published there were a couple of college students on the internet that were trying things out like how to take a kick to the head oh, and they were like knocking each other out and it was funny at the time but it was intended purely as entertainment but I can give you a hundred percent certainty hand on a bible that I wrote everything as if you could do it if you had a billion dollars and all the proper training. So, I mean, the very first page, a warning from the Batcave, and it's the total <laughs> disclaimer of like, you, you don't want to say, come on, don't be stupid. But yet it's kind of like, come on, don't be stupid. Like, come on. Oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> you know, in the long history of comics and cartoons, there yeah. are kids who have run into walls expecting, you know, a magic door to open up like on the Roadrunner. Uh -huh. um, you know, I, I don't know if, I mean, John Byrne did that famous FF story, Fantastic Four, where, you know, the kid set himself on fire to emulate the human torch. So, you know, we, we can't anticipate imitative behavior. Yeah. But you know, as long as we put it, you know, the disclaimer there, then there's no legal you know, obligation by the publisher or me, you know, if somebody hurts themselves trying to take a kick to the head. Absolutely. Uh, I, I did do a follow-up. I did a Superman handbook, but the, uh, the, the issue there is that, you know, Batman, you know, it's all realistic because, you know, he's real Superman. We had to do things like, you know, how to swim, uh, how to survive a riptide or how to, you know, treat second and third degree burns. Like it was, it's more, uh, you know, one of those catch-alls for, you know, any kind of first aid, or, um, you know, any, any sort of first response you would need to do to, to save someone. I found, I found that funny in seeing that you did a Superman one, two, and in your foreword written by Chuck Dixon, the first sentence says, there's a reason that no one has ever written a how-to guide for Superman. <laughs> <laughs> it's almost like it's a challenge accepted, Chuck. I'm going to go yeah. ahead and follow that up and I'll show you that. I'm going to write this. Uh, yeah, here, hold my beer. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> exactly. It was tougher. And I have to say, I mean, I love Superman. I've written the mm -hmm. Superman Ultimate Guide. I've written a couple Superman stories. Um, but, the, you know, Superman, I don't know. I, I, I suppose if, you know, if I could do it now, I'd give my eye teeth to write Superman. Mm -hmm. But um, the, the Batman is just so much more down to earth. Like you could, you know, you feel it when he gets hit and when he hits something. You know, Superman is, is you know, godlike in the sense, you know, with his, his extraordinary powers. So like writing that one, it's like, okay, 
you know, until Superman gets there and can give you CPR, here's how to survive drowning, you know, or here's how to survive quicksand. And so it was, it was less fun writing that because, you know, it was, those things were more, uh, I guess, Google-able uh, at that point. With Batman, I had to really talk to experts to get sort of the insight into how to do all this stuff. And it's funny because, you know, I, I, had, I had to do tons of cold calling. And when I wrote Batman, if, you know, talking to police officers, firemen, first responders, if you mentioned Batman, those guys were all in, men and women. They, they said, you know, the reason why I am, you know, this, you know, police officer or fire person is because I love superheroes. Uh, other people, you know, scientists, you know, uh, you know, sometimes would say, you know, this isn't serious. It's a waste of my time and they'd hang up. But uh, the, the people that, that are in the, the, the business of saving people's lives uh, were really, you know, more than anxious to help doctors also and uh emergency i had one emergency room doctor who you know basically you know said hey or, you know somebody else take that heart attack i've got to talk to scott so well to move like full to disclaimer move, nobody died nobody died oh thank thank god uh, to uh move along with an interesting note is the two different approaches you had in writing materials for batman begins so you wrote the visual guide and then you did the comic adaptation? Yeah, I don't know which came first, the chicken or the egg there. I, I <laughs> to, I, no, I, no, seriously, I'd have to go back and look. Um, the, uh, I, I think, I think the, the visual guide came after and I think it came much more easily because I had read the script. But I was working from a lot of preliminary scripts when I was writing the comics adaptation. Mm -hmm. And it was really tough because they kept it under such lock and key. I mean, I, I signed some really... Uh, really stringent non-disclosure agreements that would basically, you know, dump me in a, a large hole and I'd never be found again if I revealed anything. And at one point I, I had to go into DC's offices and get the script from Paul Levitz's office. Mm -hmm. uh, it was under lock and key. And I, I took a laptop and I worked in one of the conference room. It was the Clark Kent uh, because, you know, Clark Kent is there reading a copy of the daily planet in, you know, full size statue. Uh, in order to finish it. And I was, I was double fisting Starbucks tea, coughing my brains out. I had the world's worst, I know it, it sounds weird now talking about it during COVID-19, but I had like the world's worst respiratory infection. Wow. Uh, and uh, I, I coughed so hard driving home across the George Washington Bridge, I nearly blacked out. So it, it, it was a rough time like writing it because I couldn't have physically have a copy of the script in hand and they didn't trust me enough for it. Um, but uh, it was a good experience. It's just that there were parts of the, the parts of the story that I had to wait until the last minute. And as literally as I was writing it, we were handing off pages to uh, Killian Plunkett in order to draw them so that we could get this out on time mm -hmm. um, so that it would come out almost simultaneously with the movie. And then the visual guide was different because I would get that from DK and I would have all the pictures and I would write to the pictures of the, you know, of everything. And so again, you know, that's another non-disclosure agreement, but you know, I, I sort of knew the whole story frontwards and backwards by the end of it. So as, as a Batman fan on the inside, as you're reading this script, are you, were you getting really excited at loving the potential of what this movie could be? Yeah. Yeah. Um, because I had seen all the other films. I was a fan of Tim Burton's Batman. Mm -hmm. Batman Returns, not so much because it just seemed a little too, I don't know. It was just, it was a little too fetish, you know, mm -hmm. with, with, with the, with, Catwoman and the Penguin. It, it went weird. It went too dark. Uh, and then the films after that were just too campy. It, you know, it went down mm -hmm. that road again. Um, so it, this was sort of the, you know, let's get it done and do it right this time. And reading the script, I was very excited because, you know, it got into the origin in a way that, you know, no other writer had done before um, with Ra's al Ghul as the villain, uh, a love interest, Alfred. So I was very excited to, to be part of that. And and, you know, towards the end of my, the, the problem is, is that because I didn't really have the ending, I think part of my story is really front loaded. And then as we get to the end, I think I only had a couple of pages to work out the, uh, the whole, you know, major set piece, which was the tumbler chase, where the tumbler is literally like, you know, driving across rooftops. So yeah. I think that was only like two pages of my adaptation because we were literally running out of pages because I didn't know how much more of the story there was until I got, you know, the, the approved script that's that I, you know, couldn't ever talk about. So that was how, that was going to be my next question was like how challenging that was to 
to take a you know that was a 120 plus page script down to what was yours i think 48 to 50 pages of a comic yeah yeah story. i think it's 48 pages maybe 64 okay i have to look back but it, it's like you know two pages of movie script is like one page of comic book script so mm-hmm. there had to be some condensing and you know i i've done other comic adaptations of films since then and you know you you know you kind of you can work out a shorthand of scenes that are just you know, their filler, their transition, you can sort of uh, abbreviate it as necessary. Mm-hmm. So, um, but that one was the hardest one. Uh, Chuck Dixon and I worked on a, a, an adaptation of Wild Wild West that uh, they pulled the plug on. It was going to be drawn by Butch Geis. And apparently Will Smith didn't want his comic book likeness. And of course, Butch mm. is probably the only artist that could render, you know, uh, real actors as close to reality as possible. But uh, they pulled the plug on that one. And then later I, I did work. I sort of ghost wrote, uh, Chuck revealed it not long ago, uh, Snakes on a Plane. So, and that one needed to be done. Oh, it needed to be done yesterday. So uh, I was working on it furiously, uh, helping Chuck out uh, in order to get that to two different artists for the two issue adaptation of that. So, Well, we keep bringing his name up. So let's just dive into it. Mm-hmm. Your, as we'll call him, the, the year one trilogy with Robin, Batgirl, and Nightwing. Uh, you you co-authored all of them with Chuck. So let's mm-hmm. start with the first one of Robin. How did that come about? And especially, like, how did that work between, you know, two authors, one artist? Um, well, Chuck and I struck up a friendship while I was at Toy Fair magazine. And I had the, the bright idea, and this was when the, the Batman and Robin film came out, mm-hmm. that uh, I, 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 Chuck and I had been talking back and forth, and I found out that he was kind of a, a toy enthusiast. He had, um, well, he created Bane, who, of course, was one of the villains, uh, not, not the best interpretation no. of him, but he was in <laughs> Batman and Robin. He, he, he grunted a lot. Yes. Um, but I knew that Chuck liked miniatures, and he liked toys, and he lived uh, outside of Philadelphia at the time. And so I invited him to the International Toy Fair in New York City. And we were going to do a column. And, and Chuck ended up writing uh, the final page of the magazine that month where he got to see and review the very first Bane action figure. Wow. And so, we, you know, we took him along. And then after that, Chuck and I just sort of, you know, we, we talk on occasion, struck up a friendship. And we, we sort of realized that we had very similar tastes in terms of comics and toys and, and movies especially. Uh, but fiction in general and also the history of comics, we... Uh, Chuck is, you know, a bit older than me, uh, without revealing his age. Uh, but you know, we, we sort of had the, you know, uh, you know, a, a mentor slash mentee, you know, big brother little brother relationship. And uh, Chuck um, knew that I was working at DC, and he, he, you know, we started working together. We we pitched some ideas, and I think, I think it was my idea to pitch Robin Year One. Um, and I, you know, I'm going to have to say that with everything, it, it's fifty fifty. But I, I think I may have approached him and that we did, you know, of course, we, we pitched it together. But um, just talking about the fact that in all the years since Batman year one, they hadn't done another. You know, there, mm-hmm. there was no other thing. And so Chuck and I went in with the idea that why not make this a bookshelf and do the whole canon of Bat characters. So we pitched Robin year one and uh, they did it as a prestige format four issue miniseries, 48 pages each. And based on the success and the sales of that, uh, two years later, we did Batgirl year one. And this time they, they allowed us to sort of blow it out into nine 22 page issues, which is, it's roughly the same story content as the first one. Uh, and then after that, they came to us and said, hey, can you do Nightwing? And we're like, well, sure. Um, and we, we, we sort of planted the seeds all the way through for the next one that we did. Mm-hmm. So we kind of realized that at the end of the day, we wanted to have a bookshelf of these year one stories. And uh, around that time, Chuck had left DC for cross-gen comics. And I was working as a freelancer for CrossGen. We wanted to do Jason Todd year one, but uh, just changing editorial and, and changing, you know, changes in lives, we just never got to, to really pitching it or, or fulfilling that. So um, to answer your other question, uh, two writers, one artist, we, we write 50-50. Uh, one of us will start out, uh, we'll have a, a through line of what we want the story to be. We'll have an outline, sometimes loose, sometimes we'll talk it out in front. Chuck will write five pages and then he'll send it to me and then I'll write five pages and then I'll send it back to him. And the, the thing with Chuck is, is that it'll take me, you know, five days to write five pages. Two hours later, I'll get five more pages from Chuck. <laughs> so it, it's probably the fastest writing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we have, I mean, I have a Chuck voice. 
in addition to my own style and we kind of blend easily. So uh, at the end of the day, after we write those pages, you know, before the issue's done, each of us will do a write through for consistency. You know, he'll, he'll jazz up some things that, uh, that, you know, might need, you know, his flair. I'll, you know, take a stab at dialogue that might sound wonky and, you know, all together, you know, we kind of form a co coherent third voice that really seemed to work for all of them. I mean, they, they've been in print ever since, you know, they were first published. So, um, I'm, I'm quite happy with my royalty statements. They have also like, I think Robin was the first to do it maybe last year, but they've done released them in uh, deluxe editions. Yes. And yes. those are, those are what I have and they are fantastic. Like, yeah, DC, they're beautiful. DC has been on a, a kick of releasing stories with deluxe edition. I really like that format of just expanding the page and, and, and everything. And I, and I really like that. And these read really well. And to comment on like the, the two, writers on one one work it did flow kind of seamlessly because i just reread all three of them as like one voice so it wasn't like oh this is really weird compared to this one it just it did seem as you just said you have a chuck voice and it blended well i i yeah, think it's totally true yeah and i think when we both do the right through at the end it, it sort of you know it fixes any inconsistencies but i can't think of any point where we would have any sort of inconsistencies at times through all the things that we've co-written mm -hmm. and there have been other things too like joker last laugh uh i as time wears on i tend to forget what pages i wrote and what chuck wrote i mean there are some that i know definitively oh that's me and or that's chuck but you know we kind of look at it like wow you know if we were to get the art from the artist it doesn't matter you know we, we both had a hand in, in every single page did you ever have, either of you have moments where you wanted to take a stab at the other person's writing? So something he wrote, you're like, actually, could I, could we try, could I try this in what you wrote? Or yeah. was it pretty much, this is yours, yeah. this is his? No, no, there, there were times, um, I, I think one notable uh, issue was Batgirl year one number, I'm going to say number five, it was the origin of Firefly. Mm -hmm. And that's a character that Chuck kind of brought back with Graham Nolan in Detective Comics years before and chuck was really itching to tell the origin story and so so he did sort of like the the grunt work on getting that set up and then you know i went through and did you know my part on it and so you know that's one where he's like hey can i write the origin here and i'm like yeah, absolutely go ahead you know yeah and so you know we, we it always worked out 50 50 in terms of the writing and we we had editors who would always ask us you know who wrote what we're like well we wrote it together so, you know, there's, you know, he didn't carry my water and, you know, I didn't, you know, I didn't do anything, you know, more than, than my 50%. So it was, I think in everything that I've done collaboratively with Chuck, it, it's really, we, we both, you know, it's been, you know, hand in glove, we've been worked together, you know, very seamlessly. So as the, with the success of the Robin year one, and you both had had a vision of, hey, that's a Batgirl and maybe a Nightwing and stuff. How, how did you approach the, the sequels, if you will, to make them different, but still, you know, fit into this, into this world? Because I think what you established well, and what was done really well, especially in the first two books, is that they feel very timeless. And I love how you know, it's almost like they can be contemporary, but then Batman's using a Batmobile from the 1940s in comics. And the style and the look is almost like a Darwin Cook kind of look, but it doesn't resemble, it doesn't fit into, oh yeah, it's definitely 40s or 50s or 70s, or it's now, it kind of works at any time. Yeah, um, I mean, and that's by virtue, I think, of having the artists, mm. uh, Javier Polito and uh, Marcos Martin, who were both friends, our friends. Um, you know, these guys are Spanish artists who, you know, are come from a different comics tradition that is really uh, based on just this tremendous appeal to anatomy and storytelling that is, you know, it's not hyper stylized, like, you know, it's not Kirby, um, you know, it's not, I mean, pick any artist that you know that is definitively that artist. I mean, they have a more of a classic kind of animation style, but yet, mm -hmm. you know, I don't want to downplay it by saying that it, it's, you know, any way, you know, kid-like. It, it, it's very, uh, very clean lines. Um, and I, I'm, not, I'm not doing the justice that, that it deserves. But when we knew that we had Javier and we saw the first few pages, Chuck and I actually went back and rewrote some later sequences that he hadn't gotten to yet, just to play to his strengths mm -hmm. and, and to blow out the pages. And then when we knew that we had Marcos, 
who, you know, just blew us away with every single page. Um, you know, we, we went again, went back and sort of said, you know, let's, let's take out some dialogue. Let's take out some narrative uh, captions because we need the art to really sell this. And, and really, I mean, it's one of those cases where, you know, you, you get the art and it's so much better than your expectations. And so I, I think that uh, that being said, because the art had sort of a timeless appeal, we also made attempts to try to not always reference technology. Because yeah. anytime you throw in a cell phone, whether it's a flip phone or an iPhone, you know, 10 years later, you look stupid because it's, yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it's anachronistic, you know. So, um, you know, we have the computers and stuff and, you know, we have the callbacks to Barbara is Oracle and Backer Year One. And, mm-hmm. and, and somehow, you know, because a lot of the stuff had been made timeless with the Batman, the animated series, it was okay to show a Batmobile that looked retro. Yeah. You know? Um, you know, it didn't have to look like the Tumblr or the Arrow Bat from, you know, the last Batman movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, and I love the, I love that style and that look. And no, I agree. It's definitely not Kitty because you guys may have written like the most evil Two-Face in Robin year one that maybe that we've ever encountered in a comic TV show or movie. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's brutal, you know, the mm-hmm. baseball bat, you know. <laughs> yeah. You know, it wasn't me, it was the bat. Whack, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, well, they're villains, they're bad guys. Exactly. Um, and I, I, think, I think both Chuck and I agree that uh, I, you know, I, I sort of rail against villains that writers attempt to make sympathetic, that their villainy comes from some moment in their life where they were abused mm-hmm. or someone, you know, you know, killed their puppy. I mean, that's not villainy. Villainy is, is evil. You know, it's, yep. it's uh, greed writ large. And so, you know, you have to be afraid of the villains. And I was talking to a, an interview uh, just maybe two weeks ago about uh, how some people were surprised that the Mad Hatter was engaged in the, uh, you know, the human trafficking. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the, the girls who look like Alice and, you know, that was a pretty dark turn, but, you know, in order to, to make him more than a one note joke, like from the Batman TV show, you have to sort of like, look at, okay, well, he's got this mania. He, it's not just hats. It's the whole Alice in Wonderland kitsch. So, you know, what, what is that about? Okay. Well, he sells Alice's to third world nations and, you know, dictators. So. I think, yeah. And it never crossed the line of being, I don't think of being like, oh, this is a, this is too macabre of a story or anything. I think it was just the right balance and the, I guess the editing of, um, I guess, panel placement or shots and stuff like that. You'd, you'd say it like in a TV show, the camera placement of the, it's happening off screen. And I think that yeah. kept it from being very gruesome. And it's like, oh, but we get the point. We know what's happening. And it's like, that's, that's rough. And I just think it was just a very effective, effective style of, in a way to tell that story. And I think your the Batgirl story built on that and was equally as like mature, but yet still accessible. I, I actually bought it uh, and gave it to my niece who's 11 and gave it to her last year because she's been getting into comic books and she loved it. Loved the Batgirl story. <laughs> oh, that, that's so nice to hear. You know, the thing about Batgirl that always surprises me and it makes me, I wrote it in 2003, I became a father to a daughter in uh, 2007. And, um, you know, it, it's, I, I hope that, that young female readers can see that, that just how much respect and admiration we have for the character of Barbara mm-hmm. Gordon. Um, we, we were, you know, we came this close to a Batgirl year one animated movie. And, you know, that, that of course would be icing on the cake. But I, I really, you know, in my part in writing it was to make Barbara Gordon, a character that was not a victim, that unlike all the other bat sidekicks, she chose this path, not out of vengeance or, you know, any kind of retribution. She wanted to be a, you know, a cop. And because, you know, the male dominated society stood in her way. She wasn't tall enough. (laughs) She was, yeah, she did it her own way. And, and, you know, I, when female comics creators reference it, um, when, you know, female readers reference it and, they speak to the accuracy of Barbara Gordon's characterization. That, that is as much affirmation as I need uh, for that book. I mean, that one, I think even more than Robin Year One, that one uh, we worked extra hard on to make sure we got it right. Yeah, that's such, it's just such a great character. 
Barbara Gordon as herself, as Batgirl, as Oracle. I think she's just, she's a really great character. And you say there were talks of an animated movie. Well, never say never because HBO Max is green lighting everything these days. Yeah, so yeah. Maybe, well, just maybe. <laughs> well, it, it's funny. I mean, it's on the internet. It's it's part of the, the you know, the web record. But uh, Lauren Montgomery, who worked for uh, Warner Brothers Animation, that was sort of her pet project. And she, you know, was working on it. And it was, it was, you know, like this far from being green lighted. Mm-hmm. And they did that Wonder Woman animated film that came out, you know, I don't know, five or 10 years before, you know, the Wonder Woman movie. And the Wonder Woman animated movie tanked. And so Warner Brothers uh, believed that a female centered animated film could not sell tickets. So they, they pulled the plug on it. And there was an internet petition and everything else. And if you watch the Brave and the Bold animated series, on the very last episode where Batmite is channel surfing and he's kind of creating his own playlist of what he would like to see, they did a, a sort of a CGI Batgirl and Batman uh, three minutes segment. And it's Batgirl versus Firefly. And it's literally what the Batgirl year one movie might have looked like. So uh, at least cool. I know that. Yeah. So, but you know, there's a Batgirl movie in development. I just hope that, you know, whoever did it, I know Joss Whedon was first attached, but whoever's involved that they, you know, that they look at the, some of the source material that, that it's not just Batgirl of Burnside, but they try to, you know, they try to get that origin in and maybe, you know, do something with your one. Were you given a heads up that that was going to happen in the Brave and the Bold episode, or did you just no, turn no. it on and saw it? No, no. And I don't know, Ryan, if you know, they also did a Batgirl year one uh, motion comic. Um, no. uh, Warner uh, Premier was a, a mini company within Warner Brothers. They took mm-hmm. Watchmen, Superman Red Sun, and Batgirl Year One, and they made these motion comics. And it's kind of like the stuff we used to see back in the '60s. Yeah. Remember the you know the Hulk, you know, Doc Bruce Banner, belted by gamma rays. You remember those ones that were kind of like they looked like comics panels yeah. that were, you know, sort of photoshopped, you know, with animation like uh, like web animation. Mm-hmm. And they did it with the entirety of Batgirl Year One. And you can buy it on DVD. It's uh, streaming for free on YouTube on Warner's uh, uh-huh. Warner Premiere or Warner Brothers. You know, I think it's WB Off the Lot or something like that. Uh, they had real cartoon voice actors do the voices, and it's really cool. It's got, you know, it's got background music. It has a, an opening sequence that sort of takes all those great pages from the Batgirl Year One Deluxe Edition, where you know you look at Marcos's thumbnails, his sketches, his pencils then Alvaro Lopez's inks and then the colors and it kind of, you know, does sort of the flip book as it, as the picture comes together. So it, it really is kind of like an animated version of it. And I wasn't even informed of that. Like it just came out. Uh, I think it was announced at San Diego and then, you know, it was done like a week later. So, that is awesome. I had no idea yeah, that, that yeah. existed. I knew that they made such a big deal of the, the Watchmen one back when the, the live action film came out. And yeah. that's the only time I'd heard of a, one of the motion comics. So yeah, check out, check out Batgirl. It's pretty cool that they, the cast and crew got like Batgirl year one t-shirts and I didn't get one, but ah. I, I, I keep checking eBay in case, you know, one of these, you know, creators is looking for some fast cash. Yeah. And I don't want to leave out either that Nightwing year one is also belongs on that same shelf. I think that one is really, really good from yeah, that, the Scott the McDaniel. The right. Scott McDaniel. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Scott did a brand new cover. Uh, I'm hoping that, that Scott's, you know, watches this and, and realizes that it has a place of distinction on my wall someday. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, that one, you know, DC came to us and said, can you do Nightwing? And tonally, it's a little different because, you know, it's, it's Scott's wonderful art, but it's not sort of the same style as uh, Javier or Marcos, but it, it kind of bookends the entire year one sequence because, you know, it shows the, the sidekick, choosing his own path at the end and i think for each year one we looked at batman year one and we tried to do something a little different where you know the robin year one was alfred's journal narrating it it was his voice batgirl was barbara's uh uh, diary and then nightwing we thought you know dick really isn't much of a writer so he kind of recorded his thoughts and feelings about being fired and and finding his own path and i think what's great with the nightwing one is the different approach too of Yes, there's a villain, but the story, there isn't like a villain from the beginning to the end. It is, it's mostly like it's Dick's evolution in this major life event, like from sidekick to solo. 
that wasn't yeah. present in the first two. There was like, you know, two faces like that, that cloud that hangs over the whole story of Robin. And I mean, the annoyance of Killer Moth and Firefly, they're, you know, hanging over the Batgirl story. And this one, it's just like, no, this is Dick's story, but there's others that are included too. Well, yeah. And I really, I really pushed to make it kind of canonical with new teen Titans continuity. Mm-hmm. Cause you know, back in 1980, you know, 83, 84, 85, the two comics that I, you know, just waited for, you know, week after week were Legion of Superheroes and the New Teen Titans. And so I was always struck by during the Judas contract, which is a story that's, you know, nearly flawless, mm-hmm. is that, you know, Dick goes upstairs after he meets Jericho and his mother and comes back down with the Nightwing costume on. It's like, I'm Nightwing. <laughs> and we never really got the sense of, okay, what was the journey? Like, how did you decide on that? Because that was never explored. And so I really pushed with Chuck that, you know, I wanted our story to sort of fit as seamlessly as we could with that story. And so at the end, when he gets the suitcase, it's the same silver suitcase that he had in New Teen Titans number 44. Um, And, you know, it was Alfred who kind of created the costume. And so we kind of gave it that backstory, uh, tied it into the Kryptonian origins of the name Nightwing, but it really was meant to kind of fit in with, you know, it was, you know, Dick took time away from the Titans and this is what he did. And so you can read Judas Contract, Nightwing Year One and all the others. And, and hopefully if we did our jobs right, they can have a good long shelf life. Like the stories are, you know, as timeless as they can be. Well, I mean, here we are now, what, 15 years later and some people are still discovering for the first time. Others are reading them for the fourth, fifth time and still enjoying them. So I think... I think they will have a long, healthy shelf life for well, sure. Yeah. I mean, ironically, Batgirl and Robin year one were both in print for the longest time. There was only one domestic trade paperback in 2005 for Nightwing, and it's been out of print until this deluxe edition. So uh, it, it's finally back in print. You know, people could download the issues and stuff, but like having a copy in hand, yeah. it's finally back there. And what DC has done after the deluxe editions uh, the following year, they've published a brand new trade paperback version. So mm-hmm. they did it with Robin. Um, we're waiting on Batgirl and hopefully they'll do it with Nightwing. And that way, you know, if you don't want to spend, you know, the $24, $29.99, you'll have a more affordable $14.99 trade pa- paperback available too. Absolutely. And I also don't want to leave out, since this is a Batman podcast, that also Batman was in each story, I think, the perfect amount of time. He's definitely, I think, the second... If it was a, a movie, he's second credited, for sure. Yeah, I mean, it's, you, you can't get away from the shadow of the bat. I mean, he's got to right. be a presence in, in every single one. And, you know, it's... Uh, and, of course, I, I think that our Batman is sort of molded from the Kevin Conroy, you know, Batman in terms of his characterization and... Um, I know. I, I always tell people that when we wrote Joker Last Laugh and anytime the Joker appeared, I always pictured Mark or, or thought of Mark Hamill's voice when I wrote Joker dialogue. <laughs> Many um, of us do when we're reading it, we hear him saying it too. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, Mark Hamill, I mean, he epitomized it, but he had such great, I mean, of course it was, you know, uh, through uh, Paul Dini mm-hmm. and Bruce Tim, like that, that great dialogue. I mean, my favorite sequence is uh, when the Joker is fighting Batman and Joker six his jackals or hyenas on Batman and Batman punches out each one. And the Joker says, you know, Hey, I don't hit your kids. And, <laughs> and he's like, wait, Oh, I do. You know, it's just, <laughs> just that, 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 that's what I, I picture like that, yeah. that, that Joker. Uh, that's perfect. Uh, so as we uh, wrap up here, so I can, can let you, let you out of here. The usually a guest comes on and we talk about a Batman story and they pick like a favorite panel and a favorite page, but we didn't talk about just one story. So I'll stick to a favorite question of your works. Let's talk Batman works and the Robin Batgirl Nightwing count in this. Do you have a favorite project, a favorite book that you've done and interpret favorite any way that you want? Um, yeah, I mean, again, Ryan, it's like asking like who my favorite child is. Um, <laughs> it's tough. I mean, I, I think, I mean, I have to say that, you know, I, sometimes maybe the art didn't measure up to my expectations in certain things, but I love all the stories. I mean, I really, mm-hmm. I really was grateful for the opportunity to write them. And so I really put my all into it. Um, in terms of a favorite panel, um, I, I love the, the last few panels of Batgirl where, uh, you know, we have that great, 
the early dawn sequence where Bruce reveals his parents' graves. Yes. And so she understands the reason. So that one, I was like, wow. Like, I, it still gives me chills thinking about that. Um, the coloring on that is just in, like, oh, it's exceptional. It's, that's a, such a good panel. I get it. Yeah, yeah. And there's, that, that, there's a, a splash page from Robin Year One where, you know, uh, Dick wakes up after being, you know, having the, the snot beaten out of him by Two-Face and he's all bandaged and, and Bruce fires him and, you know, and, mm -hmm. and he's in bed and, and he turns to Alfred and says, what am I supposed to do now? And, you know, it, through the window, you can see the bat signal. So, you know, like those real, you know, gut punch moments, I, I think are uh, some of the things I'm, I'm most proud of. And, and even like small things too, I did an issue of Batman Gotham Knights. It was a callback to uh, a pandemic of all things where, uh, <laughs> you know, they, they did that series uh, Contagion in mm -hmm. uh, the bat books. And, and I have a callback where the clench, this, this viral uh, disease has somehow, you know, kind of vectored into the bats of the bat cave. And I know it's really weird given that, you know, the, the coronavirus has, you know, origins in bats, but Alfred gets sick because he cleans up the bat guano in the bat yeah. cave. Uh -huh. And so every page of that story where he, he finally succumbs to the illness is a single page story. And it's meant to be uh, tracking along the 21 day cycle of an antibiotic. And so each character has like a, a little vignette with Alfred and I was able to do in my Gotham Knights run uh, I, I, I tried to sne sneak in guest stars out of the brave and the bold and so one of the guest stars in that issue is the Adam and he is literally at microscopic level fighting a viral you know cluster that does looks not unlike you know COVID-19 mm -hmm. as he's trying to explain you know in his uh, in his expository narration what it is that Alfred's fighting and how dangerous it is and so like little moments like that and I had a sequence also in Gotham Knights where uh, Dick Grayson and Barbara Gordon are stuck in traffic and they're doing six degrees of black lightning and so they, they talk about you know they, they have to connect black lightning to the red bee in six degrees or less and, and Dick is able to do it you know so or Barbara does, I forget who does it, but it's a cute little, you know, meet cute moment between, you know, them as a couple at that time. Very cool. Uh, well, Scott, I can't thank you enough for, uh, for coming on and answering questions and getting to nerd out a little bit, talk all things Batman. Um, Thanks for having me. Absolutely. It was so much fun. If you ever want to come back and just talk some more Batman, I, You've got my information. Let's do it. Absolutely. You know, bring me on anytime. You know, I, I, I love comics and, you know, this is something that, uh, you know, I can do all day, all night. Uh, if, uh, do you have anything that you want to plug or share, direct, guide people to other works, upcoming works? Anything? Yeah. Um, okay. So uh, the, the two, like... The two things I have coming out next are January 12th. I have, uh, they're literally books that are this big. Uh, the Marvel uh, mini book of heroes and the Marvel mini book of villains uh, from Inside Editions. And they're both 150 characters each. So they're 300 pages and they're like little uh, bios for the various heroes and villains of the Marvel universe. And um, I know I, I went to the other side of the street for some. It's okay. It's okay. Um, we did but, the but, last episode. So it's okay. I'm a Marvel <laughs> fan. I have to say that I'm a Marvel cinema fan, possibly mm -hmm. more than Marvel or than DC at this point uh, until DC brings their a game. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, the cool thing about these books is that if you go to the internet, they have like a power level. Uh, not unlike, you know, like the Dungeons and Dragons or RPG stuff where you've got like power, you know, strength, you know, agility, things like that. And there's been no consistent uh, levels for all of these characters. You know, you've got one where the thing is stronger than the Beyonder or, you know, Galactus is, has less power than Reed Richards or something like that. So it's all over because most of the stuff online is fan based. So as we wrote this, we vetted it through Marvel editors so that the power levels are now it's the first definitive take on you know who can beat up who in the marvel universe so uh those are coming out i think they're like 12.99 each but they're they're like tiny little hardcovers that you could fit in your back pocket and then a little bit later this year i did the third and final volume introduction for the brave and the bold omnibus and in it for like the first two three pages i wax poetic about what the brave and the bold and Batman meant to me 
And, you know, literally I, I would have done it for nothing. You know, the fact that I got paid for it, uh, it was just icing on the cake, but uh, I wrote the introduction for this final omnibus that collects, I think the Brave and the Bold number 156 through 200 uh, when it ceased publication. And wow. just talked about the legacy of the stories and Jim Aparo, who is, you know, one of my favorite artists. One of the best. And, yeah, and just great bat stories, you know, and a lot of those were Bob Haney bat stories where Bob ignored continuity completely, didn't care, didn't bother him. And, you know, it, they were great stories because he wasn't a slave to what had been done before. So. Very so, cool. Yeah. Uh, Marvel, DC, we're all fans of everything. So I don't think you have to choose sides and we should never choose sides because then we're limiting uh, great content. So <laughs> absolutely. So once again, I'll echo Scott. Thanks again for, for coming on the show. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Ryan. It was a great time. Happy new year. Well, there you have it. A lovely conversation with writer Scott Beatty. He was a gem, a very nice gentleman, and uh, could have kept talking with him, but wanted to respect his time, of course. And yes, he was not lying, and I would not have expected him to lie, that the Batgirl Year One motion comic is available on YouTube for free 99. That's right, free 99, the greatest price of anything. Uh, definitely worth uh, checking out and seeing if you enjoy it. I've looked some of them up myself and they are pretty damn great. So quickly before I head on out of here, if you would like to follow the show on Twitter or Instagram to see when next episodes drop and maybe some giveaways and some upcoming episodes. Just go to at the Batman BC. You can also write into the show at the Batman book club at or the Batman BC at gmail.com for questions or comments, concerns, go to Eric Holzman. You can also follow me on Twitter at Lauer underscore Ryan Lauer spelled like lower. And the Batman Book Club is a proud member of the Batman Podcast Network, hosted by BatmanOnFilm.com. Just go to BatmanPodcastNetwork.com for a whole list of other great nerdy shows that we all share some interests in. And if you would ever be so kind and can take 30 seconds out of your day, please hit the link to the rate and review that's in the description of this show to help rate or review this show for Apple Podcasts. Because the more reviews we get, the more the word spreads. And as we all know, that word is panic. So that will about do it for this show. Once again, thanks to Scott Beatty for sitting with me and chatting all things nerd. I hope you guys enjoyed it. And until next time, read more Batman comics. Batman.